Right now, though, we stay committed to covering the latest on the BC floods, with thousands still stuck without power across this province, hundreds still stranded as a result of this atmospheric river that we have been swept up in over the past couple of days. The entire community of Merritt, as we learned this morning, has been evacuated. One man is lucky to have made it out to Kamloops. Jared Thomas is a resident of Merritt, and he joins us now. Hi, Jared. Hey, John. How's it going? Doing all right, Jared. Uh, I thank you, first of all, for giving us some time. Uh, just take us through what the past uh, 24 or maybe 36 hours has been like for you, as I know that you tweeted out earlier this morning some footage of what it was like there in Merritt, uh, basically one step away from wherever you were staying, I think it was at a friend's house, uh, almost being completely submerged. Yeah, so the footage is actually of my place that I was watching basically ah. from a friend's house, so um, that's the doorbell cam to, to my house on Parcel Street, which is about uh, uh, a little more than a stone's throw away from the Coldwater River, which is experiencing uh, the flooding right now in Merritt. Um, and basically, uh, you know, the past 24 hours, if you go that far back, uh, you know, me, my son, and my wife and dog uh, happily playing in the park. Um, this uh, development has kind of been more in the last... 12 hours, John, mm-hmm. um, you know, no, no real chance to, uh, you know, prepare for this one. Um, it kind of came on in a hurry. Um, we were woken up by, by sirens and megaphones at about four this morning. Uh, like I said, the entire town of Merritt has been evacuated as of earlier this morning. Uh, what is the latest? I mean, can you still see your doorbell camera now? I mean, has the situation gotten worse or what, what's the latest you heard about that? I think uh, I think it's it's kind of spreading out and and uh, you know getting getting worse uh, further into town. Um, looking at at my door cam, it, it's kind of staying the same. Uh, we've got our front deck uh, that's still above water. It's probably about three three and a half feet above uh, street level, and so uh, we're hoping that those floorboards stay above uh, stay above water so that our our house. Uh, kind of can avoid some flood damage uh, but that's not the case for a lot of people in Merritt John uh, who who might have uh, some lower lying houses and some in some different areas they're getting hit hard mm-hmm. and uh, you know we're, we're seeing streets that look more like uh, creeks and rivers right now uh, you mentioned you know you're with your child and, and your wife first of all is is everyone okay I should have asked you that first my apologies there Jared Everyone's okay, John. Yeah, we're actually, uh, we decided to jump the gun a little bit. Uh, at first, we headed up to, to a friend's house that lives on a plateau in Merritt called The Bench. We stayed there for, for a couple hours before um, deciding to uh, make the jump to Kamloops here. And uh, all safe and sound at a family friend's here in Kamloops. And um, no ill effects in Kamloops, uh, at least so far. Um, so thankful for that and, and hoping that it, the situation remains the same here. Uh, that is really good news. Uh, have you heard anything regarding perhaps uh, rescue operations for those that might have been unfortunately stuck at home there in Merritt? Uh, th- thankfully, you managed to get out. Uh, maybe you had that sense of mind to do it early. But uh, I'm sure, as you sort of mentioned, there are those who are less fortunate right now. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I know they they got um, there's some different areas uh, of merit. There's a small subject section called uh, Colletville um, that's on the other side of the Coldwater River, and they were all evacuated earlier this morning um, and were able to uh, to get out. 
Um, and there was only one, one bridge crossing the cold water that wasn't submerged. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were able to get out through that route and they were evacuated to Kamloops already. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I was getting ready to, uh, leave at about four thirty this morning, um, you know, the cops were starting to make the rounds, do door knocking, um, in the neighborhoods that would be most immediately affected. So most people, uh, in the lower lying areas were told, you know, it's time to go, um, get your things together. Um, I know I got a call from a, a friend and client of mine, um, who was still at his house at about 10 o'clock this morning, hmm. um, said the basement was flooded. Uh, the furniture was floating in the basement. Um, but in terms of his, his ground level was, was okay. But, um, you know, now everyone's hitting the road here and, and really Kamloops is, is the only place to go everywhere else. Are, Kamloops or Kelowna because every other highway, uh, yeah. there's mudslides and damage. So the coast is kind of a, a no-go right now. Yeah, indeed. We'll check in with Canada Task Force One uh, later on in the show for an update on what some of those situations are like out on the roads. But uh, right now we're in conversation with Jared Thomas. He is a resident of Merritt. Thankfully, he and his fa- family, his young family, managed to evacuate safely out to Kamloops. But uh, Jared, you know, I'm wondering, uh, you've been in Merritt for a few years. Uh, something like this has never happened before, right? And, and clearly, as you mentioned, 24 hours ago, you weren't thinking about this as a real possibility. So it's not like you had uh, any idea that you had to prepare and, and put supplies together for something like this. No, you're exactly right, John. Um, it was kind of a, a situation where luckily we still had our, our go bag from the wildfire season uh, packed up and ready to go. So uh, we quickly grabbed that and, and some other supplies and, um, you know, hit, hit the road uh you know, as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, definitely it wasn't, uh, you know, let's get out in sandbag kind of situation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, a thing where you could prepare. It kind of went from zero to 60 uh, within the span of a couple hours. And, of course, those couple of hours were overnight. So uh, most people were were sleeping soundly and, and thinking uh, today was just going to be another day. But um, that definitely wasn't the case. Uh, Jared, I'm wondering, too, because we were getting uh, some reports in the newsroom that perhaps phone service right now in Merritt is down. Uh, We don't know if that's necessarily true, but that is something that I'm hearing. Have you tried maybe calling anyone in Merritt, uh, trying to get a hold of them and maybe realize you can't get through? Is this something you've observed so far? Um, I did just get a call from a colleague um, probably about 10, 15 minutes ago, but that was uh, via cell phone, so... Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if landlines might be down um, in Merritt, but um, certainly it seems like there's still uh, some communication coming out of Merritt. Um, and so I, I can only speak to that and uh, did did just hear from a colleague of mine. And <laughs> I'm a real estate agent up here in Merritt, John, and uh, <laughs> some deals are going to go sideways today. I tell oh, you that. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be a very busy day here for you. But, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about your safety and, of course, public safety as well. But uh, I'm glad that you can have a sense of humor right now, Jared, because uh, obviously things are scary. It's a, it's a tough situation for a lot of people. Uh, what's next for you and your family right now in Kamloops? How long do you think you can stay there? Uh, what kind of supplies do you have? or what kind of supplies do you think you'll eventually need if, for example, you need to stay up there for a few more days, maybe the rest of the week? 
Yeah, well, luckily we're we're at a family friend's. They have a spare room. Um, you know, they're not in a situation where they'd need to uh, to uh, punt us out the door. So um, we're safe in terms of that. You know, they got a fully stocked fridge and pantry. So um, we're uh, definitely going to be leaning on them and their kindness um, in terms of that. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of supplies, you know, um, of course we forgot some, some baby supplies when we were leaving. So luckily they have grandkids and, uh, a lot of stuff, uh, that they have at their house will come in handy. Um, but, um, there were some things we left behind that we were just, uh, you know, kind of zone out in, in the blind rush to get out. Of but, course. um, uh, in terms of supplies, you know, you're, you're starting to think of hip waders, uh, you know, gum boots, mm. um, blow heaters. Uh, you know, we had that rush during the heat wave where you couldn't buy an air conditioner to save your life. Uh, you know, it's going to be kind of that same that same effect now where, uh, you know, people are going to be looking for, for uh, water pumps and uh, blow heaters to, to try and... Uh, reverse some of the effects of this flooding once we're allowed to go back home. Right. Well, uh, Jared, thank you for giving us some time here today. I'm uh, awfully sorry to, to hear what you and other Merit uh, residents are going through right now, but we are glad that you and your immediate family are doing okay and will be okay for at least the next several days. Uh, fingers crossed things work out more favorably than maybe some of us are anticipating. But Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. You betcha, John. No problem. He is one of Canada's most recognizable environmental activists, one of the world's most accomplished scientists and researchers, and he has essentially dedicated his life into the battle against climate change. And as time has gone by, the louder his voice and the clearer his message has become. He is the founder of the David Suzuki Foundation. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Suzuki onto the show. Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Oh, thank you very much for letting me speak. <laughs> Absolutely, sir. It seems fitting that we get you on the show today uh, because we are seeing this atmospheric river cause so much trouble across the province today and yesterday as well. Is there any doubt in your mind that this is the result of climate change, similar to what we saw in the summer with the heat dome? No, absolutely none. And, uh, you know, we've had warnings long before this. Ten years ago, if you flew over northern British Columbia, our great forests had turned bright red. And that's because the northern pine beetle was no longer kept in, in uh, check by the cold winters. You had to have five or six days of sub-zero weather, and they weren't being controlled. And they just basically demolished billions of, do- of dollars worth of pine trees. So, you know, British Columbia should have been at the forefront of leading the charge on, uh, on uh, climate change. But, of course, we, we haven't been. Nobody is because... We've elevated uh, things like our corporations, you know, the fossil fuel industry is such a critical part of the, uh, of the uh, economy of Canada that we can't possibly start talking about, gee, should we be restricting fossil fuels? So uh, we've just, um, you know, played a fiddle while, while the world is burning. Indeed. And I think that's the cold, hard reality that we're facing now, not just as a province, but not just as a country, but as an entire planet, I think as a species, we're seeing so many points that you were making so early in your career, uh, so many points that unfortunately were ignored. But we are hopefully, Dr. Suzuki, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we are hopefully seeing a new young generation coming with 
maybe the promise of a little bit of optimism because they're starting to understand that the future that they're going to inherit when they become the leaders of tomorrow, uh, that it's looking bleak right now as a result of the inaction that governments and peoples, largely Canadians as well, uh, have been responsible for. Well, I mean, I don't know why anyone can feel optimistic or hopeful. I'm always told, well, what's the hope? What's the hope? Well, if you look at the track record, uh, not just around the world, but in our own country, uh, I don't see how you can say, oh, we have to be optimistic. We have, to, we have no choice but to act if we love our, our children. But we have very little to fall back on and say, oh, look at the hope. Uh, don't worry, things are going to get uh, uh, better. We've been pushed right to the edge. And the one thing that we don't have, that nature has, is time. Hmm. You know, if we disappear, people say, oh, well, we're trying to save the Earth. Don't worry about the Earth. The Earth is fine. Earth did fine without us. When humans are gone, the Earth will still be along. Nature will be radically different, but I don't doubt that nature will will rebound. If you look at the past extinction episodes where 70 to 95 percent, can you imagine 70 to 95 percent of all species suddenly disappear? Well, Mm. Suddenly, in evolutionary terms, as 2.8 billion, uh, million years, but uh, they suddenly vanished. You think, wow, isn't it amazing that life rebounded? Life rebounded in a radically different form. You know, when the dinosaurs disappeared, suddenly mammals could creep out of their holes and, and begin to flourish. And it was the disappearance of the dinosaurs that gave uh, all the mammals a bigger opportunity. So life will come back. But it takes an average of 10 million years for life to rebound. Humans have only been on this planet for about 150,000 years. Mm. The average life of any species is about, well, mammal, one to two million years. And, um, you know, we've been around such a short time, and we're already driving millions of species to extinction. And it's, you know, as the top predator on the planet... We're the most vulnerable, it seems to me. We can't survive with the destruction of nature around us uh, that's going on. The problem today is that we've never had this kind of situation where we have to act as if we're a single species. We're basically a furless, two-legged ape. Hmm. And our great capacity, our great survival tool was our brain. Our brain meant that we could think things out and we could escape danger but using our, our mind. Most other animals are limited by instinct and genetics that freezes you into a limited number of ways you can respond. Humans, by, because of our intelligence, can respond in a much greater, uh, different way. And, you know, the one thing that we do that no other creature does as we do, we look ahead. And we say, oh, if I do that, I might get in danger. But if I go that way, I know there's something good to eat. We had foresight. We could look ahead and we could affect the kind of future we went to by deliberately choosing to avoid danger and exploit opportunity. Hmm. The problem today is we've got scientists with supercomputers and for over 40 years, The leading, I mean, half of all Nobel Prize winners in 1992 said we may have only a few decades before we were hooped. Mm. 
This is 1992. The scientists have been warning us. And now we say, ah, those scientists, they're just trying to get more money. You know, they lie, they cheat, they're no better than anyone else. And, you know, look at the anti-vaxxers, for God's sakes. Look at the uh, people that say that climate change is a hoax. Right. You know, so we don't, we don't recognize that scientists are doing what we've always done as a species. Look ahead and see where the dangers are. We're not doing that anymore because we've elevated the economy. We've elevated our, our political institutions, our laws above nature and above what scientists tell us. Well, to your point, sir, and uh, looking at the David Suzuki Foundation's website, it does say that Canada's current climate plan will not achieve a climate-safe future. But this isn't to say that this is the failure on just a Liberal Party or a Conservative Party or an NDP government. No, this is just fact. You are, as a scientist, referring to the data that backs up this statement saying we can do more and we should be doing more. Exactly. And what you just said is the, the most important thing. This isn't the political football. This isn't an issue owned by the Greens so that the Conservatives can worry about the economy or the NDP can worry about unions. Or, you know, it's, this is an issue that confronts us that should not be politicized. And it's still being politicized now, you know, I told Jonathan Wilkinson the day after the election, when he was still the Minister of Environment and Climate, I said, look, the, Trudeau is not, is not saying the truth. He did not win a victory. He called an unnecessary election so he could get a majority. More people voted for Aaron O'Toole hmm. than voted for Trudeau. But Trudeau got in because we've got this crazy first-past-the-post system, which, by the way, Trudeau promised to eliminate when he was first elected three, three elections ago. Right. But So I don't see how Trudeau can claim a victory. He got one more seat than he had before the election. He's still a minority government. And he said, I have a mandate. How can you have a mandate when you don't even have a majority of the votes? I said, this is your opportunity. What Trudeau should do is go before the public and say, I listened to what you've said in this election. You said you don't want any party leading the government. You want us all to work together. So I said to Wilkinson, set up an all-party climate emergency team, Hmm. and they're going to be charged with coming out and telling us what we really have to do, and it's not going to be easy. And this is the hard thing. Even environmentalists think, well, if we can, if we can get, you know, shut down all the coal-burning plants and we, we uh, electrify everything, if we trade in our, our, our combustion engine cars for electric vehicles, install LED lights, then we'll have a sustainable way of living. Absolutely not true. We are so far beyond the capacity of the planet to support us. It's simply not true. We're, we're living now by using up what should be our children and grandchildren's uh, heritage. Right. And, and, and we're, we think everything's fine because we've got to keep that economy growing. The economy is already way too big. And each of us is con- contributing to that economy by buying so much crap that we don't need, you know, After the end of the Second World War, we were cast out of British Columbia. We, my Japanese-Canadian family. Yes, sir. And and we were very poor. 
So clothing, we were very careful in buying our clothing. And I have always worn blue jeans right to this very day because denim wears like iron. (laughs) What kind of a species is it that pays hundreds of dollars for a brand new pair of blue jeans already ripped to shreds? What the hell is that telling you? It tells you us, Doctor Suzuki. Crazy. It tells us, Doctor Suzuki. Keep doing that. And, and my apologies, Doctor Suzuki. It's just we're up against the clock here. But it tells us that maybe the priorities of uh, society, not just within here in Vancouver and BC and Canada, but maybe. Uh, Globally, it's just on the wrong things. That's kind of what we're seeing here, and which is why for those that are climate change activists, environmental activists like yourself, there's a lot of frustration because your message has unfortunately, for the most part, fallen on deaf ears. Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Uh, Congratulations on the 30th anniversary of the David Suzuki Foundation. And uh, again, thank you for what has been a lifetime of work on your half. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Welcome back to the Joel Bennett Show. John Jang here with you filling in. Now, you may recall last Friday, we spoke about the shortage of family doctors in B.C. and CKNW's medical contributor, Dr. Burinder Narung, who is also a family doctor, uh, spoke to us about the burnout that so many physicians are facing, not just in this province, but across the country, and why this problem is so concerning. We go further now into the discussion with a new report saying thousands of foreign doctors are available to help right here in Canada, but are sidelined by frustrating regulations. Amar Khan is a reporter and journalist with Global News. He joins us now. Amar, thank you for your time here today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, when I spoke with Dr. Narung uh, last Friday, you know, one of the things he really stressed to me was the effect of so many doctors within Canada, not just in B.C., but so many doctors now feeling that burnout and we're seeing family doctor numbers uh, really going and trending the wrong way. What is this new report suggesting that maybe there's a solution here that's just outside of our grasp? Yeah, one of the things that we noticed early in the pandemic was that um, BC was one of the provinces, uh, you know, among a handful that were recalling healthcare workers, you know, doctors and nurses that were retired. Um, so there was a clear demand in filling in the, some of the holds that were caused through the pandemic and the need for many uh, British Columbians and Canadians to get uh, access to health care. You know, right now there's about 5 million Canadians that just don't have a primary care physician. What this, uh, you know, reporting essentially shows us is, is that there's, you know, 13,000 international, uh, internationally trained doctors and many of them just aren't even in the healthcare system. About 47% of them are not practicing at all. Um, and you know, this is looked at as possibly being one of the fixes. It's not going to be a wholesale fix to, um, healthcare in Canada, but it will be something that can alleviate a lot of the pressure that our, you know, our health, our healthcare system that's incredibly stretched thin right now could, could use um, and could be advantageous to to Canadians. I'm wondering, because of that large number of foreign doctors or those who have the medical expertise that aren't in the field here in Canada now, uh, do we know if there's a reason for that? Have they just decided, no, it's not the lifestyle for me? Or is it because there are some you know serious blocks in their way that's preventing them from being one of those uh, very helpful and positive advan- advantages for Canadian healthcare? 
Yeah, one of the experts I spoke to in, in this field, Dr. Shafi Buyan, he just mentioned that, you know, he speaks to a lot of these people. And unfortunately, it's just the process, John. Uh, a lot of people just don't want to go through the rigors because if we're looking at this from a timeline perspective, if you're coming to Canada, you know, as a newcomer, uh, English proficiency, obviously, you know, to get in matters, but then you want to get it to a point where you can communicate with your, with your patient. So it needs to be a little bit better. And then from there, you're going to have to write these exams and, you know, they're in English. So you need to be, um, you know, solid. So that takes about a year, you know, about two years. And then from there, you actually have to get accepted into residency. And that can be really challenging, too, because these people don't have experience in Canada and or in North America. And, you know, you're not really given any credit for it. So now, you know, we have, uh, you know, a, a surgeon, for example, who uh, spent, uh, you know, almost 10 years uh, working in Kurdistan with 60 overseeing an operation of 60,000 people for Doctors Without Borders and the United Nations. And for him to come here, it's going to be a almost a five to seven year process. And by that time, he's about 52 nearing retirement already. Mm. So it's just an it's, it's a flawed process, which, uh, you know, doesn't allow people to get streamlined, even if they are incredibly skilled at their jobs. I mean, that's the most confusing thing is that if they are a highly qualified candidate, uh, it, it feels like, based on the outside looking in from where I am, that they should be welcomed with open arms instead of being thrown all this red tape and processes to try and check through. Uh, how do you think, Amar, if you know, how does Canada compare in this process compared to other countries that maybe are a little bit more lenient in accepting foreign aid? Yeah, right now there's actually kind of a, a bit of an arms race and there will be an arms race according to Dr. Boyan, you know, for doctors. Um, it, there's going to be a desire to have some of these people coming there. Like, for example, Australia and New Zealand, it's, it's a little bit more relaxed than what is, what, what the, what we have in Canada. Same with, you know, certain places, you know, in the UK and even Europe. So, um, you know, Canada is a, a little bit behind on this and that's reflected in our physician to patient ratio, which is, you know, 26 in the world. So, you know, th there is going to be a talent race for this because as we've realized through the pandemic, you know, even if we go to AI, we, we, we move to a virtual uh, care system, you still need actual doctors um, and you need people who are talented at their jobs. And unfortunately, um, you know, it, Canada doesn't seem to be the most welcoming place for for these physicians, uh, these foreign physicians to be coming. And, you know, as I mentioned before, Dr. Buyan, he's told me a bunch of a bunch of people that he's been dealing with are looking elsewhere um, and are considering, you know, getting outside of Canada. Interesting. I mean, this goes hand in hand again with the conversation we had with Dr. Narung uh, last Friday talking about how this was clearly an issue at the federal level. And I think with this story now available on globalnews.ca, you get a better understanding of what exactly he meant by that. Now, this is just one aspect to the story. It's a much deeper issue, as we know. But Amar, I really do appreciate you giving us some time and breaking down this particular report. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for having me. That is Amar Khan, global news journalist and reporter. You can find the full report online, globalnews.ca. And welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. It's John Jang, and certainly hope you've uh, settled nicely into what's been a rather dramatic Monday. We're certainly not out of the woods just yet, but we will keep you updated if there's any major news that breaks regarding the BC floods, the evacuations, and rescue operations happening uh, across the region. Pardon me. <laughs> 
part of me just almost swallowed on my own spit and choked. Uh, that would be very rude to do on the radio. Uh, for this next story, however, we actually cross over the border, which in pre-pandemic times, if you're not busy choking on your own spit, would have made for a lovely trip to Bellingham, where you and I could visit Bellis Fair Mall, stop by the Cinnabon, have ourselves an afternoon. Reality is, of course, non-essential travel has opened up again for fully vaccinated Canadians. So what has that meant for our friends in Bellingham? Let's check in with Guy Okio Grosso, President and CEO of the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce. Guy, thank you for giving us some time here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And it is flooding here, too. Oh, you know what? That was going to be my first question. I understand that this flood isn't just uh, localized to British Columbia. It is, of course, impacting uh, your community as well. What is the situation at the moment along I-5 and uh, within the area of Bellingham? Uh, I would say Bellingham city of is is doing okay. There's a couple, uh, definitely what I would say, trouble spots. from what I've heard, I-5, I don't know if it's currently closed, mm-hmm. but it has been closed a couple of times, actually south of Bellingham due to a landslide. Um, and so I don't know if that's opened yet. They usually they usually react pretty quickly to the interstate closures um, when it's not specifically water. Uh, but there are some roads that um, our Canadian friends are, are very familiar with uh, kind of in North Whatcom County, mm. including the Guide Meridian, that do have sections that are closed currently. Right. And so, uh, indeed, we're urging anyone who's thinking about making the, the trip down south of the border, do so carefully, be cautious, and be ready, because chances are you might have to turn around. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, crews are on site, making sure it's all clear and good to go. Uh, but, Guy, we don't have you on here as our go-to Bellingham traffic <laughs> expert, though you did a great job with that. Uh, instead, you are, of course, uh, representing the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce. And I'm curious, in the weeks since the border opened up for fully vaccinated Canadians, uh, what has that been like for you and the community? Well, I would say first and foremost, kind of, we say this a, a little tongue-in-cheek, realizing that there are some 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 items that we need to address mm-hmm. uh, between the two countries. But welcome back, Canada, <laughs> is what I've uh, said on almost every opportunity. Uh, we look forward to welcoming our Canadian neighbors and friends uh, back to the community to shop, to engage. Uh, again, cross-border business has been continuing, uh, but this next stage is just a good sign that maybe things are getting back to to what they felt like before the pandemic. And so, yeah, just welcome back Canada is probably a good sentiment. Uh, I would say since the week uh, that it's been open, I would say the the result has been pretty comparable to what we thought was going to happen in that not a lot of uh, people were crossing over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think... D- Due to the fact that so many Canadians, or pretty least, let's say Canadian shoppers, come down for deep discounts, and shopping is not an individual sport most of the time. It's usually a team sport right. uh, or a family sport. And so if you're looking at a PCR negative test costing anywhere between 130 to almost $300 U.S. in some scenarios, you're not going to save the money. Uh, that you would normally expect if you were a Canadian shopper. What I feel that we did see is a lot of uh, connection. 
uh, some, you know, aunts and uncles and families and grandparents meeting grandbabies for the first time uh, in almost two years. And those type of things are worth it. Right. And that's, I, I think that's what we saw. There's no way to, to, to measure that specifically. Uh, but I, I do know that some of our retailers did see um, some Canadians uh, for the first time in quite some while, or at least a, a heightened number. And I think that's really due to the fact that if you're spending that money to go hang out with family and see family, why not go shopping while you're at it? Right. So that's kind of what I think we've seen um, and what I've heard from our from our retailers too. Fair enough. And I've also seen and, and heard some reports of uh, Canadians going to, um, you know, some pharmacies spread out across Washington state. It could be in Bellingham. It could be closer in Blaine, who knows, uh, but you can get yourself mm-hmm. a test there for far cheaper than what you'd have to be paying at the border. Uh, whether or not it applies for when you want to come back home to Canada, uh, that's beyond me. I'm not sure about that, but it clearly seems like there's an, uh, you know, there, there's opportunities where the American hosts, if you will, are trying to make it a little bit more uh, amicable for the Canadians who, of course, have to deal with such a price tag at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the... Uh, I, I do believe, I don't know this for a fact, but the travel test or testing for travel mm-hmm. is a bit cheaper on this side, probably just due to demand um, spread across the, the the whole nation, if you will. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of locations that that do offer tests. But at this point, unless you get, unless you find someone to give you a really good deal, <laughs> uh, is the testing for travel purposes are still not free. So right. someone, someone is paying for that at some point in time. Fair um, enough. Yeah. And so there are multiple locations, including our countywide kind of the mass testing site that's currently set up at the airport property. Uh, for Canadians to to engage, and same rules apply. I mean, you still want to schedule something, uh, and I think the logistics piece that is concerning at this point for anyone that's relying on that is the logistics of scheduling it, taking the test, and then getting your results back in that time frame that you want to kind of make it back northbound. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is still a lot of frustration amongst Canadians who believe, uh, at least British Columbians, who think such a test is so unnecessary, given the systems that are already in place. You have to present your pass in order to get to the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do ask the question, what's the point of having this vaccination if you are still having to pay up the nose, uh, almost specifically, uh, to get back home? So literally, almost literally, indeed. I mean, those tests can be a little invasive, but uh, indeed, that's what is frustrating a lot of British Columbians. I've heard many on this station guy telling us, look, uh, part of the reasons why I go down there are the reasons you mentioned to save money shopping, Mm -hmm. to fill up my gas tank cheaper than I would here and to uh, maybe go pick up some parcels that are waiting for me in my uh, in yeah. my postal box. So there's so many things yep. that they just can't do because the price doesn't justify it. Uh, but with that said, is it at least encouraging to see some volume of the Canadian travelers coming back and flocking to all those popular sites? Like I understand Trader Joe's has just been kind of the number one hotspot for Canadians simply because, you know, we don't have it. <laughs> it usually is. <laughs> the um yes and, it, and it, as i said it's this it, it, this kind of emotional uh 
realization that things are kind of getting closer back to what we would like them to be going forward, right? I don't want to say back to normal right. because what does that mean anymore? But definitely the 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 benefits of being a cross border community, right? And I think depending upon which side that you live on, uh, there are benefits going either direction. So it's it's definitely a nod to us getting closer to uh, last week we announced a collaborative press release with the Surrey Board of Trade uh, basically advocating the Canadian government to to match the US restriction which I think is safe and fair mm-hmm. um, and probably will be what it is going forward so if nothing else to match I think is is a good protocol because it's not as confusing for people. Right. And I think that at the end of the day, just to say, oh, yeah, you need proof of vaccine or that negative test to cross either way. Right. And none of the other extra layers um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, I I would concur. Absolutely. I would concur. And, you know, I'll just tell you this. Our show producer, Ben Dooley, uh, is scheduled for a trip to Seattle, I believe, next month. He's got tickets to go see the Seahawks and, uh, of course, the Seattle Kraken. So uh, chances are we'll get an interview with Ben to see what his experiences were like. And fingers crossed, Guy, that by the time good old Ben makes that trip, uh, maybe we are talking about the reduced, reduced, um, I want to say, advisories and guidelines that are in place for Canadians to make it a little bit easier just to get into the States and do the things that we used to do and we miss doing. Like I said, that Cinnabon, oh, it's been years and I just, I can't wait to be back. (laughs) Well, let's hope soon enough. You got it. That is Guy Grosso, President and CEO of the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce. Guy, thank you so much for giving us some time and I'm sure we'll be checking in with you again uh, maybe a few weeks down the road. Anytime. Thank you.